you guys. I have the honor and the privilege to speak to you guys live today. If you're a visitor here, uh, typically we take this time and hear from uh, usually our lead pastor via video. And so today uh, I am happy to be here uh, to talk to you. I have a, I have a message that I want to share that the campus pastors worked on together and uh, we're kind of sharing the same notes and maybe a little bit different sermons at each location depending on what God has showed us. But uh, before I jump into the notes, you probably have them and you have the three points that go alongside that. Um, as I was preparing, I just wanted to start off maybe a little bit differently um, than what we normally do. And I just want to make um, the gospel message, what we do, why we come here, very clear and plain and simple. I think it's easy to jump into a series, it's easy to kind of welcome our guests or our visitors and fly through the fact that we're all here, broken people who have been redeemed, but sometimes we take that for granted. And so um, if you're new to Christianity or if you're new to church, sometimes it takes maybe several weeks or several months to actually hear what it is that we actually believe. We get into the nuances of a series, but I just want to say this. We are all broken people, but we've all been redeemed because we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who took our place on the cross. Now, that's already leaning towards Christianese. Does that make sense? It's already verbiage that if you walked in here off of the street, it's already words that we don't use on a weekly basis. So, let me say this. All of us understand consequences, right? Um, even this past week, if you read a newspaper or turned on the television, you recognize that our week is full of a broken world where people do things that they shouldn't do. People have things done to them that shouldn't ever be done to them. And we live in a world and in a great country where there are consequences for inappropriate actions. We even have professional areas such as like the NFL, for anybody who follows the NFL. This week was kind of crazy. And so there's consequences to actions. And that's what it is also in our relationship and how we interact with a holy and righteous God. And the only way that we can interact with a holy and righteous God is if we are completely blameless and completely perfect. But I would be the first, and I'm sure my friends in this room would raise their hand very quickly to say, but I'm not righteous and I'm not perfect. So then how do we understand this gospel message where we as broken people get to interact with a holy God? And so very quickly before we jump into the notes, I just want to say this, that we deserved punishment. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death, meaning not immediate. We even saw that with Adam and Eve. Their actions demanded a consequence and resulted in death, but that death was not immediate. That death was an alteration of their relationship with God. 
And so what needed to happen was a sacrifice, somebody to take our place in that. And so we all gather here, not as perfect people. Sometimes the world looks at the church and says, well, they all think they're perfect. And I would shout to the world, we all know that we're not perfect, but we all know that what we deserved, somebody took our place in that. And so what we proclaim and why we gather here is this, that the punishment that we deserved was taken by somebody else. And through that process called justification, and then the working out of that process called sanctification, we receive eternal life. And eternal life is this, that we have access to a loving God. Does that make sense? We're not perfect. We are broken. But the gospel message is this, and I want you guys to get this if I have an opportunity to stand up here and say it. I'm going to say one thing very clearly. The gospel message is that this Jesus Christ, he died on the cross for our failures, for our sins, to make an access, a way, a door, an opening, a path, however you want to say it, so that we can have relationship with a holy and righteous God. Is that incredible? We don't deserve it. We couldn't possibly attain it on our own, but somehow we've been invited in. Now, some of us have sinned horrendously, greatly. There's one boy in Galveston, Texas this week that down there, it's kind of a beach community, and he was driving a golf cart along the beach and you can do that from kind of community to community or house to house. Well, you're not allowed to drive a golf cart unless you're a licensed driver. So he got a ticket. <laughs> a police officer actually pulled him over and wrote him a ticket. See, in real life, we understand that when we do something wrong, there's a consequence. But that's also the same in our spiritual life. When we've done something wrong, small, like drive a golf cart, let's say, categorize that into the area of, well, that's just kind of a smaller sin, or great, whatever that would be. Use an example from the week in the news today. We understand consequence, but I just want to say before we get started that Jesus made a way for us. No matter how small you erred or how great you failed, we all have one Savior, one Redeemer, one Reconciler, and that is Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, grab your notes, <clears throat> and we're going to go into this. This is the last message in a series called Lies, and today we're going to talk about the lies that we tell ourselves. So the first lie that we tell ourselves is this, I can change on my own. See, as we deal with sin issues in our life, as we deal with um, broken relationships, as we deal with uh, certain things that we encounter that maybe become a hindrance to our relationship with the Lord, we try to work it out on our own. But here's the verse that goes along with it, John 15, 5. You guys have heard this. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Something? Apart from me, you're awesome. <laughs> Apart from me, you can get along. 
You know, I think sometimes we as Christians, we live in that verse like, hey, apart from me, I can manage. And we kind of coast, and maybe we go through a couple-week span where we're not really connecting with the Lord. And we kind of tell ourselves, hey, we're okay, I can manage. But this verse, spoken by Jesus, words that he spoke to his disciples and the people that followed him around, was this. Hey, you better stay close to me. Because apart from me, you can't do anything. <laughs> if we really truly believed that, man, we would start our day. We would finish our day. We would pause during moments in our day and go, okay, where's Jesus? What's he saying? Let me get into the word and just be refreshed and filled up, right? Because apart from him, I can't do anything. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, God speaks to me sometimes. Um, not audibly. So if, if, if you're here and you're thinking, hey, I, I want to hear God's voice, um, when we say that from the stage or in our gatherings, um, I don't ever mean it that you have to hear it in an audible way. For me, I'll show you how he does it. Usually I'm in my daily routine or my normal life or whatever I'm doing, and all of a sudden God just pushes the pause button. And in the midst of something, it's like he just says, how do I say this? I just feel like he says to me, Evan, this is how I interact with you. This is who I am for you. See this? So uh, throw the picture up there of Ethan. So this is my five-year-old, and he's got a bike helmet on right there, and I had to take this picture after the fact because we walked down to the neighborhood park, and the kids rode their bike or their scooters, and we made a lap of the park, and then we ended up at the playground. Well, the older kids kind of ditched their bikes and ran onto the playground, started climbing on the monkey bars, but they could unlatch their helmets and throw them off. But my five-year-old, he came to me and he's like, he's like, Daddy, Daddy, can you take this off for me? And he comes over to the bench and he gets to right where I am and he asks me, Daddy, can you unlatch this for me? I'm with, within arm's length. But then he continues for the next couple of moments to try to get it. And when I say I hear from God, this is kind of what happens. In that moment, I felt like God said, Evan, that's how you interact with me sometimes. You come to me because you know that you need help with something. You know that you need to lay something down. You know that you need to take something off. You know that in order to move on to whatever I have next in my day or in my week or in that moment. You need to get this off of you. And so you know what to do. You know to come into my presence. But then in my presence, you try to figure it out on your own. How can I relate this again? Maybe this morning in worship. I think sometimes this happens in worship. We come here. We have awesome, talented musician an amazing church to come and worship the Lord in. And then for the first two songs, we stand up by our chair trying to take care of the things from this week, trying to get right in ourselves or get right with the Lord before we truly worship Him. And God's right here within arm's length going, and if you just let me do that, I can, I can do that, right? Does that make sense?
So um, the, other, the other thought on that, the lie is, I can change on my own. So um, this happened to me this week. I, I don't know, maybe I'll speak to the men in the room for just a little bit. Uh, we don't really like going to the doctor. It's not like we put that in our calendar, set a reminder, and like, oh man, it's been six months, better go see my doctor. So we kind of avoid that. Um, and then even when we feel like, man, maybe we should go to the doctor, maybe it's pain, maybe it's sickness or whatever, it's like, oh, I can do this. I can tough it out. I can handle this. I can take care of it. And we kind of push through that, right? Until there's a moment where you go, okay, I think I need to go to the doctor. <laughs> and so uh, after church last week, I was standing on the patio and um, after everybody had left, I kind of leaned over and I was like, man, my legs are tired. And then on Monday, I felt like, man, my left leg kind of hurts. And you kind of just manage. And then Tuesday, I kind of started to hobble and I was like, okay, I can do this. I went to men's group, had them pray for me. Um, and then I think it was Thursday that I was like, okay, I think I have a problem. <laughs> Talked to my wife, and, and then I decided, okay, I'll call my doctor, and um, decided to go in, and he gave me some advice, but he ended up saying, hey, I think we need to get you in to the Lakewood Clinic over here and have you have an ultrasound, and I was like, I don't have ultrasounds. My wife has ultrasound, <laughs> and I don't have ultrasounds, so Anyways, uh, I have Kaiser Permanente insurance. I don't know if you have that. Um, how can I relate this to you? Um, they need to be, Kaiser Permanente needs to be introduced to the government because those two entities would really get along. <laughs> so Friday, I spent like a majority of my afternoon and evening being shuffled around and told this and then told, no, that's not right, Don't go do this. So I, I had an ultrasound. They came back and they told me that I have a blood clot from my thigh all the way down through my calf. And so um, I, I went through the process of them um, drawing blood, and then you take oral medication, and, but that doesn't kick in for five days. And so sat down with the doctor and said, hey, she, she said, you're going to have to do... Uh, oral medication, but that doesn't kick in for five days, so I'm going to give you um, five syringes, and you have, to, um, sh you have to give yourself a shot in your belly um, for the next five days. And so I was like, so you're going to do this first one, and then I'm going to do the next four. And she's like, she's like no, you're going to do this first one. I'm going to show you how to do it. And she said, she said you, you have to make sure that it gets into the fatty tissue and not into the muscle when you do that. And I was like, well, that won't be a problem. <laughs> so... She showed me how to do it, and so, so now I've injected myself twice, and I get to do it again after the Bronco game this evening, and so um, it's, but here's my point. Sometimes we get ourselves to a point where we go, hey, I'm okay, I'm okay, I can, I can do this, I can make it, but um, maybe speaking to just anybody in here, we need to recognize that there's a point at which the lie that says, I can change on my own, we need others, and we need God. We need to get into God's presence and allow Him to unlatch the things in our lives. 
And then we need to find people, in a doctor analogy, we need to find people who are way more educated or positioned or experienced in certain aspects of this Christian walk. And when you find yourself hobbling through your Christian walk, we need to find somebody that knows how to fix that hobble. And it might take drastic action and it might take pain, but you can't do it on, my own, on our own. I can't solve this problem on my own. I need educated physicians to, to, to tell me what to do, to show me what to do, to walk me through that process, to check in on me. Does that make sense? Because we, we tell ourselves, I can change on my own. And we try to manage, and then we try to hobble our way through this life. So point number two is this. Change isn't worth it. Change is worth the pain that comes with it. The prize is worth the price. The verse we put in here is this, Hebrews 12, 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So again, uh, I'm going to give you an example, um, two examples here. One from uh, my life where I feel like God pushed the pause button again, and then one from Scripture. And... The lie is, is that, that it's, the pain isn't worth it. Change isn't worth it because it causes so much pain in our life. So let's just stay the way we are and manage, right? So I have an 18-month-old son named Reagan, and, and um, he's at that point that he's communicating in his own way. And he came to me, um, and he basically asked to be held but in that moment, I realized, oh, he came to me to ask to be held because he's poopy <laughs> and he needs his diaper to be changed. So I was like, where's your mom? Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. So that has happened probably. Um, but I can confess with you guys. So, um, but at this point in time, I, I picked him up and I was like, okay, he needs, he needs a diaper. And he came to me because he knew that he needed to be changed. And then I take him over to where the, the diapers and the wipes are, and I start the process of changing him. And I think we have the picture of him up there. And so maybe it's gone. It was up there. I don't know. So, so I, I start this process of changing his diaper. And immediately he just starts screaming and kicking and turning. And when you're changing a poopy diaper, you kind of need the baby to like agree that this is the time that we're going to change him, you know? So he was like, I want nothing to do with this, you know, in his own way. And I was like, you just came to me to be changed. You're kicking and screaming through this. Just, just do this. And God's like, Evan, that's exactly how you interact with me. <laughs> wow. He was like, you know you need to be changed. And then you kick and scream through the whole process. And I was like, yeah, I do. Because there's some times when we're stinky and we're smelly and we've made a mess of ourselves. And I think the majority in this room would say, yeah, we know that we need to come to God. But then we, when we come to God and He starts that process, we're like, well, I didn't mean it really. <laughs> I can manage. And sometimes living in our own mess 
sounds better, seems better than change. But for all the young parents in this room, you know that the longer you wait to change a poopy diaper, the worse it's going to get because then he's going to get rash and then the alcohol and the wipes is going to burn his little tushy. And so the kicking and the screaming is going to be worse. So change is is worth the price. But we kind of have to submit to the process. So, well, how, how does that look in Scripture? Uh, there's, a, there's a story in Mark chapter 5, uh, verse 1 through 20, but it's also found in two of the other accounts in the gospel, Matthew and Luke. And um, you guys probably know the story. I'm going to tell it real quick and just kind of give a refresher for uh, if we haven't heard it in a while. And that is, that is this. Jesus put his disciples in a boat, and they crossed over to uh, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the region where it was no longer kind of Jewish lands. It was a region where there was mostly Gentiles, the Decapolis, 10 cities where um, it was 10 Gentile cities. And so they go there maybe to get away, um, maybe to find kind of some space so that uh, they could hang out by themselves. They land on this beach, and all of a sudden a crazy man comes out of nowhere, just runs at them um, and starts uh, yelling at Jesus and saying, I know who you are, you're Jesus, you're the son of, of the, uh, the most high God. And, and um, Jesus has this interaction with this man who's obviously demon-possessed, and Jesus starts talking to the demons, and he says, what's your name? And the demons say, legion, for we are many. So this is a man that doesn't just have a demon, he has a legion of demons. And uh, the history of it is that the people in that region no longer took that path to that beach. Um, and it was because they tried to chain this guy. They tried to bind him. They tried to keep him in, in control. And he would break the chains. He would break the iron uh, on his wrists and ankles. And he would, he would cut himself. He would howl. He would screech. And so people stayed away from there. But close to there, up on this other hill, was um, probably some young men, maybe some boys, um, herding pigs. And... Jews herded sheep, but felt like pigs were unclean, and so the Gentiles, they uh, herded pigs and had a business doing that, and so um, I kind of imagine this story going this way. If I was herding pigs close to where I knew a demon-possessed man was kind of known to live and wreak havoc, I'd probably keep my eye over in that area, right? Like, hey, if I'm watching these pigs, I'm also looking for some crazy man that maybe he's going to come and steal a pig and eat it. I don't know. He's crazy. So, um, so I imagine that there's a couple of these guys up on this hill, and they see a boat land there, and then sure enough, crazy man comes out. And I don't know if they could hear Jesus and the disciples interacting with them, but uh, the story goes this way, that the demons begged Jesus to be cast out into the pigs, right? And so these boys are watching these pigs and watching what's going on down there by the beach. And then all of a sudden their pigs go crazy. They all get up at the same time, run straight towards the cliff and jump off the cliff into the water and drown. (laughs) That's a crazy day, right? (laughs) Especially if it was 2,000 pigs. It's not like two pigs. It's not like 20 pigs. It's not even 200 pigs. It's 2,000 pigs, okay? Think about a farmer up north or east of here that would have 2,000 cattle. That's a lot of cattle, right? So 2,000 pigs, that's a lot of pigs. So the story goes this way, that those 
boys that are watching that, they run back into town, and they're like, you're not going to believe this. The pigs went crazy. They jumped off the cliff. I don't know. There's a boat down there. The demon-possessed guy came out, and, and so the whole town gathers because that's probably their income. That's probably their source. They probably gathered together, and the people that own portions of those pigs, so maybe somebody owns 20, and maybe somebody owns 100, and they all hire these boys to watch these pigs. They all come out because they have a vested interest in this. And so they come out, and they see the demon-possessed man sitting in front of Jesus, dressed now, not naked, and he has a renewed mind. So that's pretty awesome, but what they know about the pigs being gone, they kick Jesus out of there. They beg him to leave. Well, why? Because if you wanted to go out and buy a pig today... Let's say you got some land and you're like, man, I, I'll take care of a pig. <laughs> I don't know why you would do that. But you could go buy one for probably somewhere between $50 and $75, $100. If you wanted a show pig, you're going to pay something like $450. So let's say in the midst of a herd of 2,000 pigs, the, the value of those pigs varies. But just so that I can have simplified math here, let's say that the average price of each of those pigs is $100 times 2,000 pigs is $200,000 in U.S. currency, right? That's a lot. That's a big deal. See, but Jesus was willing to enact change to redeem somebody's life and I think sometimes he's willing to waste the things that we value in order to show us the things that he values. So when we go through a process of change, he sometimes is asking us to let go of something that's very comfortable to us. And that process is sometimes painful, but he's showing us that he values something different than we value. So the lie is, is that change isn't worth it. But the truth is, is that change is worth it. So point number three. Change is a formula. The point underneath that is change comes through relationship and involves utilizing the tools God has given us. And working with God's timing. So a couple verses that we threw in here as references. Um, and then I'm going to give you a couple of, exa of examples. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And Psalm 32.8 from the NLT. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. So, the lie is this, is that change is a formula. Have you ever found yourself saying this in your Christian walk? Man, if I could just start doing this. Or if I could just stop doing this or these things. We go through that process trying to convince ourselves, man, if I could alter just a little bit of this, then it would make a difference over here building an equation of sorts in our life to go, 
change is a formula because if I can change this, it'll change that. And then if I can change this, it'll change that. And then by the time I put all of these blocks together, then ta-da, I'll be changed. But as I was going through this and thinking about it, I realized that in my life, change comes very difficult when I try to adjust certain things in my life and when I believe that change is a formula. But change, change comes very naturally for me when I recognize that change comes through relationship. So let me give you an example of that. I moved into um, the house where my parents still live today when I was nine years old. We moved from one neighborhood to the other and I was nine years old, living in a new neighborhood, and very quickly, the house across the street from us sold. And I was lucky or blessed to have the family that moved into there had another nine-year-old boy. And so immediately, we became best of friends. His name's Matt Austin. And at that point in my life, I was probably just a normal nine-year-old kid and play outdoors and um, all sorts of things. But um, I wasn't, I didn't necessarily have a leaning towards sports, uh, specifically basketball, but Matt loved basketball. And so as Matt and I, he, he actually loved all sorts of sports and uh, their family would go to the Bronco game and sometimes take me along with them and uh, those sorts of things. Well, his dad actually poured a concrete basketball court in their backyard and put up a hoop. And so if you could be trans to back then and see me as a nine-year-old, chances are I would be wearing ragtag shorts and a t-shirt and a dirty basketball underneath my arm wherever I went. And Matt and I played basketball all the time. That was, that was when I was nine. Well, that started a process that got me interested in participating in sports, and then it uh, allowed me to gain the skill and the knowledge and the ability to participate in my high school team. And so I got to play for Coach Cotty in high school. Coach Cotty's the winningest coach in the history of Colorado. I got to play for him and go to the state tournament and had a blast. How, how did I do that? I didn't wake up and decide one day as a nine-year-old, I'm going to be good at basketball. I had somebody move into my life, and we just became friends. And through that process... I was changed. I went to Oral Roberts University. I don't know what happened um, those years that I was there, but I feel like God just dumped some of the most amazing people around me, people that are changing the world even now, doing some pretty awesome things. And so I got to spend days and nights, classes and events and all sorts of things with some of the most godly people that were developing their own passions and their own skills, and it changed me. I met my wife there. We all know that a spouse has the ability to change us and make us into a better and a different person. And then as a young married couple, we were looking for a church, and we found Jubilee Fellowship Church at Broadway and County Line, a little tiny storefront location. They I think when we started going there, there were three services. Eventually, it became five services. And now, fast forward to today, there's four campuses, multiple services at each campus. Well, I walked into JFC looking for a church. And 
I showed up, and with my good Oral Roberts University roots, I thought I should show up in a tie. Well, it was like the alarm bells rang, and they sent all of the greeters to me, and they're like, you're a visitor. <laughs> so I got like the best treatment ever, you know, and then when I found my seat, I took the tie off and shoved it in my pocket. Well, the next time we went, I think Pastor John shared his vision for life and ministry. And then I found myself later on scheduling a meeting just to sit down with Pastor John and go, man, I, I don't have anything to offer to you, but I want to jump in wherever you're going. I want to go. Whatever you're doing, I want to help you do. And that relationship has obviously changed me. He opened up the door for ministry in my life, and I'll forever be changed because of that relationship. See, the lie is, is that change is a formula. If I can stop doing this, then I can change. If I can start doing these things, then I can change. But the truth is, change has everything to do with relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with others. So why would we go through the process of trying to launch what we call life groups? Small pockets of community meeting all around this area. Groups of people diving into God's Word, sharing meals together, sharing their life stories together, getting to know each other. Why would we do that? Because I want to give you guys as much opportunity as possible to dive into life-giving, authentic, and accountable community so that we can walk through this sanctification process together so that we're not alone trying to think, hey, I can handle this. I can change on my own or try to fix this and do this. But change is relationship. Change is relationship in the context of life-giving, authentic, accountable community, for sure. But it's also relationship with what I started here today, saying that we have a redeemer and a reconciler. So I have a Bible that uh, I, a while ago I preached, and I made a suggestion. This was probably a couple of years ago. Um, I said, have you, ever, have you ever read your Bible, and you're like kind of reading through your Bible, maybe it's morning devotions or whatever, and you're plotting your way through a book of the Bible, and then you find your mind kind of like, wow, I'm, I'm reading. I actually, my eyes actually like went through these lines and these verses, but man, I was thinking about something else. A, a trick that I learned was this, that I grew up on the NIV, and so I would read that, and I would underline it, and I would get to portions of my Bible where I would know what story is coming up, and those sorts of things, and I found myself like almost mentally skipping out. And then I simply changed versions. I got an ESV, an English Standard Version. Man, it changed my devotional life. It totally helped me because it's not vastly different. Now, if you went to the King James Version, that would be vastly different. If you went to the message, that would be vastly different. But between the NIV and the ESV, there's not a whole lot of difference. Man, I felt myself reading stories like I had never read them before. And so that was a couple of years ago, and um, 
I heard that uh, Beth Moore recommends the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and she does so because it's a study Bible, and there's, um, pa- there's things in here where they break out the passages, and then they even break out the words in Hebrew and in Greek, and I was like, man, i got to find that, and so I started looking for like a Beth Moore Bible. Well, it's not a Beth Moore Bible. She just recommends it. Yeah, I went to Mardell's. They were like, no, there's no, no such thing. I was like, yes, there is. <laughs> but it's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. So I was um, doing my own devotions one day recently, and uh, there was a little box in there, and it highlighted the word mercy for whatever story or passage it was. It was mercy. Well, I've taken Greek before, and so um, we go through the definitions, and these words have multiple definitions, but for whatever reason in class, it didn't necessarily jump out at me. But reading this and the multiple definitions, the last definition jumped off the page. I had to, like, put my Bible down and just go, wow, that means something totally different than what I've understood it before. And the definition for mercy, the the last definition given, is faithful loyalty. And I think sometimes we throw around Christian words, like I said at the beginning, sometimes we just go into this and assume that everybody knows the gospel message and everybody knows all this jargon and everything that goes with it. And when we talk about grace and mercy, we talk about grace is getting what we don't deserve and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. But then mercy kind of gets easily exchanged for, let's say, courtesy. So let's say um, we're in traffic together and you're in the next lane and you really need to get over. Um, And so I can extend mercy, right, by slowing down a little bit and letting you get over. We can kind of say that and, and we wouldn't think anything about that. Mercy is, you know, maybe letting somebody have what they don't deserve. But that's courtesy. See, if we say that mercy is faithful loyalty, then it changes everything I know about what Jesus has done for me. Because we think that when we said yes to Jesus, when we said yes to Jesus, He gave us mercy. And then we kind of go do this thing. But faithful loyalty means that actually there was a day when Jesus said yes to us, and him saying yes to us, he was saying, from this day forward, I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to be loyal to you. I'm not going to be just courteous and open this door and let you in to have eternal life, give you something that you don't deserve. He's saying... From here on out, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to be loyal. No matter what you do and no matter what you don't do, I will remain faithful and I will remain loyal. And I'm going to walk with you through this process of change and through this process called sanctification. And you might not be faithful and you might not be loyal, but guess what? This isn't a commitment. This is a covenant, which means that even when you're not faithful and when you're not loyal... I'm going to be merciful, which means I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to be loyal. Wow. 
I can't change on my own. I can't do it. Change is worth the price to take us out of our mess and allow God to change us. And in his presence, at arm's length, to stop fiddling with whatever's stuck in our life and just say, God, I'm here. I can't change on my own. I know that whatever you take me through is going to be worth it. And then change is not a formula. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with all of us, life-giving, authentic, accountable community. But it's also a relationship with a God who said to us, no matter what, I'm going to be merciful. Elias, Elias, faithfully loyal. Heavenly Father, we come before you. God, we bow our heads and recognize that you have been good to us. But God, not just good to us in letting us off the hook or taking away consequence, but God, you've been good to us in choosing to be faithful to us and choosing to be loyal to us. And God, we come today recognizing that there's things in our life that need to be changed. There's things in our life where we need to stop struggling with the latch and just let you cast off that which so easily entangles us. God, we come before you today in our mess and simply ask that you would take us through that process of change. God, we recognize that sometimes we value things in our life that you don't value, that you would gladly exchange 2,000 pigs for one man's soul. Whatever that is in our life, God, we offer up our pigs to you, those things that we value. And God, we ask that you would allow us to find relationship with others in this community that would change us that would make us different, that would make us more like Christ. God, we love you and praise you. We thank you that you are faithful and that you are loyal to us. In Jesus' name.